0: Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the Melbourne Library Service. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Benjamin Law writes books, TV screenplays, columns, essays and feature journalism. He has a PhD in creative writing from Queensland's University of Technology. He's the author of many books, including his memoir, The Family Law, the travel book, *Geyser: Adventures in the Queer East, both of those nominated for Australian Book Industry Awards, and the quarterly essay on Safe Schools, Essential Reading, in my opinion, Moral Panic 101. The Family Law is an award-winning TV series for SBS, which Benjamin created and co-writes, and there's a new series coming soon, so you can sit next to me on the couch when that comes out. I'm very excited to watch it. Every week, Benjamin co-hosts Radio National's weekly pop culture show, Stop Everything, with an exclamation mark, and an online startup and tech TV show, That Startup Show. He also appears on TV shows like ABC's Q&A and SBS's Filthy Rich and Homeless. In April this year, Benjamin became an ambassador for the National Library of Australia, and I think every librarian in Australia is now madly in love with him, as we should be. Benjamin, welcome to your desert island.
1: G'day, Natalie. It's good to be here with you. Just palm trees and books.
0: The, the two most... Ex- and food. Yes. Catering. Let's not forget the catering. Exactly. Benjamin, shall we begin?
1: We shall. Let's do it. Could
0: you please reveal the title and author of book one? <laughs>
1: Book one is a cheery book called Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates.
0: It is cheery. When you say cheery, do you mean a classic? Yeah, I'm
1: not saying it's a laugh out loud comedy. I'm being deeply facetious because it's one of like the biggest modern American tragedies that's ever been committed to paper. Um, It's a devastating book about the great American dream falling apart at the seams, and then collapsing into rubble.
0: It really is a, sh- a real spotlight on people feeling as though they've given something up mm-hmm. and desperately wanting it back.
1: Absolutely. And kind of conforming to an expectation of what happiness is, or kind of the compromises that you need to make in either long-term relationships or once you enter a family life or a situation where it ostensibly looks happy from the outside, but inside it's just turmoil and rage. And look, coming from a broken home myself, I'm just drawn to those stories.
0: You and me both, <laughs> and many uh, people listening, I'm sure. Um, I found myself, so I've re- I read this book many years ago yes. and I reread it again to prepare mm. for this episode, and what I was struck with was, an. and I knew it was coming, like there's no spoilers, I already see. The movie, read the book, read the book, seen the movie, all done. Yeah. All. But I found myself feeling really helpless and almost picking up on their anxieties.
1: Well, it's like this knot of dread that can't be untangled. That's it. I mean, for anyone who hasn't read the book, it's Frank and April Wheeler. They're like beautiful young couple. I think what, is it the new? Uh, it is it like the outskirts of New York suburbs? It is because right? he
0: works downtown in New York and he commutes. Yeah, to he and commutes
1: from. to and from the city, and then April. It kind of starts off with, like, the most devastating yet comic situation and environment you could place anyone in, which is community theatre.
0: Amateur theatre, yeah. Where the stakes
1: feel so high but are actually quite low and therefore the emotional stakes are just devastatingly intense. Yeah. And after a production goes wrong, like, you're kind of introduced to... You know, one of the things I really love about that first act of Revolutionary Road, it just starts us off with a feeling of dread Mm -hmm. that we'll never let go of throughout the novel and it's building up to Frank and April having an argument. And one of the things that I think is actually really hard to capture as a writer is an argument that feels like it actually is an argument. Like it's quite easy to get characters to shout and scream at each other and say wounding things, blah, 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 blah. But when it actually feels like arguments you've had in a long-term relationship and one of those arguments that starts off as one thing but lifts a scab onto the canker and the rivulets of pus inside your relation. I'm really selling this book, aren't
0: I? No, but, you, but I don't know how to – I can't sunshine and lollipops it because cause I'm with you. It's that it's when they leave – the. Th- it's even when when, you know, very early in the book when Frank walks into the dressing room to give April some words of encouragement after uh-huh. this dismal theatrical performance and he thinks – what I should say is, is this. and it's laid out for you. And, and then, then Richard Yates, comes as out a masterful mouth. writer, gives us what Frank actually says. Mm. And it's a facepalm moment for us as readers because we can see how Frank could have mm-hmm. approached that conversation. Been a better
1: person in the moment.
0: Then we see how he does... Communicate with his wife. And then her reaction is no surprise to us, but it's a surprise to him as if mm. he was like, his first thought was, I'll be kind. And then he went with dismissive and was like, Why is she angry at me? It almost
1: delves into the architecture of what it is like to be in an argument, where if you step outside of it, you actually know what you're supposed to do to be a better person yes. and to you know, pour cold water over a very hot situation. But when we're emotionally entangled inside that situation, it's so hard to do those things. And every misstep that Frank makes is actually familiar to anyone Mm -hmm. who's acted against (laughs) their better, more dignified, more decent instincts, which are actually really easy to bury under a tide of emotion and feelings, you know, when you're the only person in the room and only your feelings can be acknowledged. It's really kind of horrible, but it's a really, really good scene to study if you are a writer or a screenwriter or a playwright wanting to flesh out what an argument actually feels like.
0: Because it makes you as a reader feel helpless because all you can do is watch this unfold Mm. and you know how it could have gone better and it makes you like and sometimes dislike these characters because they both over the corner. And so that's the opening scene, right? Mm -hmm. And then it progresses for (laughs) another few hundred pages while we sit by... Well, we're not bystanders because I think we're invested in that relationship. You know, I th- I describe this book as a page turner. Mm. Like you can't put it down. Yeah. it's not it's not a thriller as we would assume a page turner to be, but it is just so. And I wonder, wonder if it's ever
1: been turned because obviously it's been translated into a film by mm-hmm. Sam Mendes, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in the terrible sequel to the Titanic <laughs> <laughs> where where Rose and Jack actually survive, marry, live in the suburbs and really, really and hate just each hate other. Each and other when you think about right. it, Kathy Bates is in the film as well, yeah, like she, she was is. in Titanic. So it really is like horrible emotionally distraught sequel to Titanic. Maybe
0: they actually, like, accidentally signed <laughs> a contract that said you will do two films together.
1: Yes, absolutely. Ed. Where you, Yeah, where there's always a death, but there's more emotional death in Revolutionary Road. Yeah. Um, But I also wonder if there's been a stage play that's been adapted from it because all the kind of... Moving parts are there, and all the scenes are so incredible. It's like when that when that neighbour comes mm. in. I forget what his name is, but um, Shep? When, yeah, is it when Shep? It, I think it's oh no no no. Is it the neighbours with the Shep's son? The friend. Shep yeah. is the friend. Yeah, but and the neighbours kind of have like, a son called John. Yes, and it's when the neighbor's son comes in, oh, and yeah. everyone just assumes that he's emotionally just unstable, which he kind of is. But he's a great truth teller. Yep, and he calls everything out, calls everything out as it is. It's kind of like one of those amazing third acts in theatre where everything just shatters. <laughs> um And it's so perfectly calibrated. Like there's not, you know, Revolutionary Road was Richard Yates' first novel. It's
0: remarkable that it was a debut.
1: And, you know, in terms of publication success, it was never matched f- with any of his subsequent works, even though, like... Other other books that he's written are really, really good, like I think The Easter Parade, which is about sisters. I think his short story collections are really, really remarkable, but none of them ever match the success of Revolutionary Road, either in sales or critical acclaim. And, you know, Richard Yates kind of died slightly insane, destitute and estranged from his family. Like he kind of became a Richard Yates novel. So I think the story behind his stories are just as fascinating and grim.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say that this book was released on New Year's Eve, which is just an interesting fact. In 1961. Uh huh. We'll come back to that later. Okay, we'll just kind right? to park that. We'll keep park that in 1961. Mind. We'll come back to it. Um, let's move on. Could you reveal the title and author of book two?
1: Book two is "Me Talk Pretty One Day" by David Sedaris. And it's funny because when you ask me to pick books, I mean, really, you've caught me today. Tomorrow, I'll, I'll probably talk about Michael Cunningham's *The Hours*, mm. or I'll I'll talk about. The His Dark Materials Trilogy By Philip Pullman Or I'll talk about On Beauty By Zadie Smith Oh wow But um,
0: I I should have asked you To pick 40 Yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) And with David Sedaris I could actually easily Pick any of his books And I just drew this one Out at random Because it's probably One of the first ones That I read I think he's consistently great
0: Yeah he is Yeah Mm. I think so too So this one Me Talk Pretty One Day Is split into two parts Yes The first part is Upbringing And the second part Is adulthood When he moves to France With his partner Hugh So So are they particular – and it's a set of essays. Mm -hmm. They're personal essays and they end up in nonfiction. Have you ever bought into the argument that maybe he's making this stuff up, maybe his books should be in fiction?
1: Well, you kind of – I mean, when you're writing memoir, it's always your personal perspective anyway. And, like, then you get into a really philosophical argument about what constitutes truth.
0: Tell me what because, constitutes
1: truth. Well, obviously, his sister Amy would have a very different account of what happened. Yeah. And his mother, who's now deceased, would have a very different account. So would his father. I mean, so would his partner, Hugh. But I think with memoir, it's about telling your own truth. Hmm. It's also about reaching for an emotional truth, and good memoir has to have dialogue in it for for the page to sing, just like any kind of prose does. But you're not walking around in life with a dictaphone in your pocket recording stuff verbatim, so of course you need to reconstruct that dialogue. And unless you're an idiot, like as a reader, we know that you've kind of made that up and taken liberties with what people have said. You know, as a memoirist myself. Um, I am not recreating an exact conversation that I heard when I was 10 years old. What I'm trying to do is convey an emotional truth and also the story as I remember it. You know, and even with with my book The Family Law, there are points where I flagged my mum and my brother don't remember this happening or they don't remember it this way blah blah blah. And then I proceed to tell the story. And I think similarly with David Sedaris you know, I think he is telling the story as he remembers it, as true and as fallible as that is.
0: I think that's memory, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but I think that's all memoir. It's got nothing, it's David Sedaris and every other memoirist on but, the shelf.
0: But it's me telling you a story from my childhood as well. And not as a writer, just as a human Absolutely. with a fallible memory. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure the other people that were in the room will remember that, isn't it? Like, there's three versions of what happened: your version, my version, and the truth.
1: Mm. Now we're getting into like a legal framework.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'll get the deposition to you on Monday. Please do. Yes. Um, so autobiographical, self-deprecating, concerning his family life. Yeah.
1: Is this, <laughs> there are resonances there. <laughs> yeah, aren't I'm just there.
0: wondering how you.
1: Look, whether it was Me Talk Pretty one day or I think the first book I read of his was Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, yeah. which was released later, because they all kind of blur into me. I kind of forget which stories come from which collection. Yeah, same. But for me, reading Dave Sedaris in my first few years of university, when I was studying creative writing and literature, um, it really brought home to me that I was allowed to write this way, that I was allowed to be funny, yeah, that I was allowed to be funny and sad at the same time, that I was allowed to write about my family, and that that was a legitimate project. It brought home to me, I mean, David Sedaris is someone from a different generation to me and from a different cultural background, but at the same time, there are these things that I really identify with, which is, one, coming from a big and female-dominated family, um, coming from, you know, a background where um, I, you know, have migrant parents as well. Like, he's got a Greek background in his family, and also just being gay. And his humour just kind of, like, spoke to me. Like, it was really uh, an inspiration and impetus to write my first book, The Family Law. And, funnily enough, before I started writing The Family Law, but after I kind of had those conversations with my publisher that maybe we should write a book, got to interview David Sedaris on the phone. And so half of it was the interview for the newspaper and half of it was just like, so I really need your advice. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't so direct, but. I really asked him, you know, what are your rules for writing like this and how do you get around that and blah, 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 blah. Ben, that's amazing.
0: What an opportunity to have.
1: I I think I held him up on the phone for an hour, but he was all for, I mean, in my memory, (laughs) he was willing and able. Maybe he really just needed to go to the shops and wanted to hang up, but I didn't let him.
0: (laughs) But it sounds like he was gracious and kind and giving.
1: He was deeply generous. So he said he had a few rules about who he could write about and what he could write about. One of the first rules was, oh, I just tend to write about people who don't read very much. (laughs) Very helpful, very helpful. Um, But he also said more seriously that one of his rules was, you know, he he wasn't going to write stories that betray people's confidence. Like one of his sisters, Mm. like Lisa or someone, had told him a really funny story about her in-laws and he's like, that is hilarious. I really want to write that. But if he wrote it, then Lisa's in-laws would know that Lisa had told David. So, so he never wrote the story Well, he never published a story. He did write it, but he just reads it out loud on his book tour in every city except theirs.
0: Hoping they'll never hear? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky. Yep. I love it. Okay, so mm-hmm. book three, we've zipped through this. My goodness. Would you like to reveal the title and author of book three? <laughs>
1: Book three is Dying, a memoir by Corey Taylor, which sounds incredibly solemn, and it is, because Corey wrote this in the last months of her life. And if you don't know who Corey Taylor is, she is, like, just one of the best Australian writers, I could say, of her generation, of the last ten years. She's just one of the best Australian writers. Um, Text Publishing published three of her books before she died, and prior to her becoming like a published book writer, she was a really prolific TV and film screenwriter. But then she pivoted into books and they just immediately were huge critical and commercial successes. So her first book was Me and Mr. Booker, which won the Commonwealth Book Prize in the region. Her second book was My Beautiful Enemy, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. And her third book, which was her swan song, and she had I I just know she had so many other books in her, but her third book, which was her swan song, was Dying a Memoir, which is a really slim book, but so, so perfectly calibrated, unexpectedly funny, yeah. deeply moving, and by the time it got released in America, was one of Barack Obama's picks of that year.
0: That's right.
1: Mm. So, It's you a know,
0: remarkable book. Tell us about it.
1: Sh- so, Corey and I were actually mates. Oh, really? We went through university together. She was finishing up her PhD when I was starting it. Yeah. And she, you know, she's got an Anglo background, but she was writing about representations of Asian characters on screen, which was kind of what my PhD was about. So I'm like, let me talk to you. Let me pick <laughs> your brain, Corey. And she was a regular at the bookstore where I used to work. So we were very much of the same communities, both academically and just in, the, in, in our suburbs anyway. And uh, so we just really bonded. Like she you know, she's got a, she has, she had a Japanese husband. Um, she had a, 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 base in Japan. And so we talked a lot about like Japanese cinema and Australian literature. And she was just really dry and funny. And, um, and then when she got sick, a lot of people didn't even know she was sick for a long time. And then she came out with, you know, this manuscript for this book, which was amazing and written in an incredibly short amount of time. Uh, And, you know, in some ways on surface that makes sense because it's a slim book and it was written in a short amount of time. But when you actually read the book, it would have been so, like, craft-wise difficult to write. But she makes it so effortless. And she does that really rare thing where she's writing about death in a way that almost feels reassuring. Like if I was diagnosed with a fatal illness, as she was um, because she died of cancer, melanoma specifically... I would really want to go back to this book Mm. because parts of it are like, I mean, it's a deeply unsentimental book. Sometimes it can be quite savage, but there's like really brutal humour in it. There is. There's um, really fantastic insights and not just into life and death, but into things like, you know, writing. There are really great passages in there about why she writes and why she tells stories. And I think the quote is something like, you know, writing, even at its worst, is, you know, a real pleasure and kind of like a balm because it helps you kind of construct your pain and, oh, actually, I've got the, I've got the quote on my phone. Oh, yeah, I'll read actually, it to I'll us. actually read it out loud because yeah,
0: please do. as I'm
1: hearing myself, I'm like, you're botching it, <laughs> Ben. But she says, um, writing, even if most of the time you are only doing it in your head, shapes the world and makes it bearable. And as a writer, I mean, I do it as my living and as my work, and I'm a huge reader, obviously, but there's very little time in the day to reflect on why you actually do it. Mm. But to write, and by extension to read, even if you are not an active writer, is about trying to make sense of something that is inherently nonsensical, whether it's the world, whether that's politics, or whether that's something as nonsensical as living with a terminal illness and and dying. And certainly I think this project of hers, Dying, a memoir, really is a shining example of that. Like it makes something like death the ultimate most unbearable and most unfathomable thing. It makes it slightly more, I don't know, okay, okay.
0: It's, you you know, you talk about the book being sort of um, savage in some parts and humorous in some parts, and she didn't write it to be a warm book, but I found comfort in it.
1: Mm, I mean, you can hear her voice, right? Like, even if you've never met Corey, like, it's a very distinct voice, which is, like, very wry, shrewd humour. And the way that she talks about, um, (laughs) for instance, you know, it starts off with quite a blunt statement about where she's gotten these euthanasia drugs from. Yeah in a time where Australia still hasn't really reconciled themselves to where they want to go with that conversation, and she's taking matters into her own hands and leading us through the realities we'll all have to face when we feel like we want to take control over the final stages of our life. And then she's talking to her doctor and he's just like, you know, and, and what else? You know, is there anything else wrong? And she's just like, oh, you mean besides dying? <laughs> like, it's just like, that's that's classic Corey Taylor, um, but really funny. And the way that, you know, she connects with other people who are dying and the way that they can have conversations um, that are funny and are kind of... Strangely, life-affirming that they wouldn't be able to have with people who aren't living with illness.
0: That's right. There's a there's a connection when you find yourself in the same space as someone else in sharing an experience, um, and for us as readers who aren't experiencing that, it's incredibly eye-opening. But the fact that it exists for people who may also be experiencing that, mm. and and for them to find comfort and hope and and some, uh, what's the word? something life affirming yeah when facing death does mm. that make any sense
1: yeah absolutely but it's kind of you know death is about is about like it really makes you confront the realities of living as mm. well like what does this all mean was I a good person when other people died? Like, she asks these questions. Like, as much as it's ostensibly about her own process of dying, she's looking back at her family history. Yeah. And when you aren't, um, you know, when you aren't attached and anchored, for better or for worse, by religion and its traditions, when you are, as a lot of Australians are becoming, non religious and not bound by tradition what is what constitutes a good farewell yeah. how do we construct and construct meaning around what good living means like these are questions that i think a lot of agnostic and godless people are still trying to grapple with and i know i am like at this stage of my life in my mid 30s there are people dying in my life now and people who have died and that's something that we need to actively ask ourselves, my generation, like those of us who don't have religion to, to kind of find comfort and strength from. Like, how do we meaningfully engage with people who are dying? How do we send them off? How are we going to send ourselves off?
0: Yeah, it is really reflective, isn't it? Um, when you're outside those rituals and traditions of religion, mm. Mm, we have to forge our own way.
1: Yes, absolutely. But it's a cracker of a read. You'll yeah. find yourself laughing. I finished the book in the airport, and I think people had thought that I'd been through a trauma because I got You're onto the plane. in a flood
0: of tears, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely crying. And I, I and I know that's partly because Corey's a mate of mine, mm. um, and I was I did finish it when she was still alive. But I I think it would be very very difficult for people to read this book without without crying and recognizing themselves and people they loved in it but in a way as I said before that's like deeply unsentimental like there's no part of this book that's syrupy there's no part of this book that is offering kind of like surfacey ersatz advice um it's blunt about the realities but in a way that's really compassionate and humane
0: it's a stunning a stunning book is it one that you'll revisit, do you think?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it can be confronting, kind of giving comfort to people who are dying or grieving. But because this book is so approachable, I mean, the title is Confronting, mm. Dying, a Memoir. But because the tone is just so welcoming and so gripping, mm. <laughs> I think it's actually a good gift for people as mm. well who are going through a tough time with their health. Um, and I, you know, there are certain books. Like if I know that I ever get seriously ill, I want to read. I want to read certain books like um, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I want to read a book like. I don't know, so many things. It's probably the time to read Proust, I guess. <laughs> I would say you're done with <laughs> Proust at that stage. But if you've got t- <laughs>
0: limited time, you've got other things totally. to read. Totally. Maybe
1: I'll do it on audiobook. Um and <laughs> then, And then, yeah, Dying a Memoir, definitely, because it's a really comforting read.
0: Yeah, it truly is. Now, Corey died at the age of 61, mm. and I neglected to mention that David Sedaris is currently 61 years old.
1: Ooh, and spooky. If we
0: go back... To Revolutionary Road, it was published in 1961, and I wonder what does it mean, Natalie? Are you, Natalie? What are you does superstitious? It mean,
1: Double rainbow? <laughs> um, no, like it's so strange when you're saying that. I'm like, how did that happen? I don't and know. I know my mum, who is Chinese and kind of superstitious about numbers and bad numbers and lucky numbers and all that sort of stuff. She she would have she would have something there. She would be like seven means she's one of seven kids. There's something there. Could you ask her? Yeah, but I think every number between 1 and 10 has, like, a special meaning <laughs> it for does. her.
0: It do- well, for her, yes, but I I went to um, ChineseZodiac.org. Oh,
1: which is the foremost authority on these matters.
0: All right, then. Well, um, 61, we have to add 6 and 1 to make which seven. Makes 7. And so it says 7. I'm quoting this. I'm not making this up. 7 is considered by some Chinese people as ghostly or spiritualistic.
1: Oh. The
0: seventh month of the Chinese calendar is called the ghost month. So you're
1: and- saying I'm going to die. I don't know. By picking these books. No,
0: no, I'm just going to finish this sentence and let's say, let's see. So it's called The Ghost Month, and it is said that the gates of hell are open for the oh. dead to visit the living. Oh,
1: good. I love being visited from people living under the gates of hell. I don't think it's going to be as fun as Pixar's Coco. <laughs> that sounds a bit more terrifying. I
0: think you, you need to ask your mum what's coming for us. I, I want to know. I Jeez. truly want to know. Benjamin, what are you reading at the moment?
1: So I just finished Andrew Sean Greer's Less. Oh, my which, God. I love that book. So beautiful. And now it's in the hands of my boyfriend who has such little reading time but is actually taking huge comfort and sanctuary in Less because it's such a beautiful little gem of a book. Like, it's a miracle of a book.
0: It's a, how is Arthur so fully formed? I know. And also, feel like like, know how, does, how does
1: anyone write a happy book? Like, uh, you know, like Andrew Sean Greer apparently challenged himself to write a book about joy because he – Someone had said that's the most difficult thing to write about. He's done it. He's done it. It's a gorgeous book.
0: Oh, the, the, the beginning, the middle, and the ending. Mm.
1: And I finished Oof. that. And now, what's on my bedside table besides you know magazines, The New Yorker, The Monthly, all that sort of stuff? GQ. Actually. It still
0: counts as reading. You yes,
1: know. yes. But I'm now reading Ted Chang's short stories, uh, "Stories of Your Life," story, the story of your life, and other stories. Ted Chang wrote. Um, that title story, Stories of Your Life, or The Story of Your Life, became the story on which the feature film Arrival starring Amy Adams was based. Ah. The science fiction film. Yeah. It, aliens Come Down. Uh, have you seen it at mm. all?
0: See, Aliens <sighs> and I are just not friends.
1: Okay, see, this is the thing. If you don't like science fiction, watch Arrival. I like because... science
0: fiction. I don't like Aliens.
1: Oh, well, these aren't scary aliens. They're benevolent.
0: I'm not scared of aliens. Right. I just, they're a bit like dragons. I just... Well,
1: the reason I am recommending Arrival right, is I'll because as much as it's about aliens and spaceships, <laughs> it's actually not. It's about life and death and grief mm-hmm. and humanity. Like, I know, I'm, I'm sounding, things. it's sounding very, very lofty.
0: No, no, I trust you.
1: But I'm reading Ted Chang's short stories um, and... I don't know. Like after arrive after you watch Arrival, your mind will be slightly altered because of the structure of the film and what it and how it pulls off that story. Okay. And now reading the stories, I'm like, wow! Every single one of his stories does that. It deals with super com- complicated math. It deals with biblical myth. It's Epic storytelling in the shortest amount of words.
0: So, do I read the story first and then watch the film? Because that's really law. You know that.
1: Watch the film. Watch the film. They're actually they're actually. This is a shocking revelation. No, because the film and the short stories, they both need to change the way that you fathom stories. So, writing on the page can do something that storytelling on the screen cannot, Correct. and vice versa. Sometimes and each of the screen each of the writers the screenwriter who does arrival and Ted Chang who writes a short story each of them do with their prose something completely different that communicates the story and i think the way in which the visual storytelling works in the movie is jaw dropping and breathtaking and i wept
0: truly yeah okay all right i'm convinced as soon as we stop recording I'll be um
1: get arrival from your local library I'll on DVD. Pick
0: up the DVD on my way out. Um where do you like to read? Where are you, where's your comfort zone?
1: I have actually a really strict routine with reading nowadays. Ooh. So I am addicted to my phone because I'm a millennial in the media, really pathetic. Um, And I get really, like, it would be so easy for me to take my phone into bed, and certainly for a long time I was doing that, and that was really intruding into my reading time. Uh, And it's just bad for you. It's bad for your brain because you've got those really bright lights drilling into your skull or whatever the science is. Um, So now I get into a habit where when I know I'm about to have – because I always finish the day off with a shower, I'm going to wash the day off me.
0: I love that that ritual of having a shower before bed.
1: And so I'm going to wash the day off me. But before I have my shower, before I know I'm going to have my shower, I charge my phone, set my alarm, and then I put it face down so I'm not looking at my phone anymore – then I have the shower Lovely. and I'll reset. You know, it's a bit ritualistic, but I'll reset. And I'm not going to look at my phone when, I, when I'm, when i you know, in my boxes and in bed. It's the book. Yeah. And so for between my shower and going to sleep, it's just all reading on the page. I love it. And so I can read, like, I don't know, reading really lost me. <laughs> Lulls me into sleep. So I try not reading a book. I try to avoid reading books on, like, domestic flights. International flights, sure, I can indulge. But on a domestic flight, I'm like, I can't afford to fall asleep. <laughs> so that's, like, more magazines and newspapers and stuff on my phone. Well, you got
0: short-form reading. Yeah. And you've got long-form reading. And
1: so definitely bed for me. I mm. mean, I mean, sometimes during the day I have to read, especially for work, but it does still feel like an indulgence. And my friend, um, the writer Anna Crean, Um, Mm. she's like, you really need to get out of that habit because reading is a legitimate task and it's not just an indulgence. You should be able Mm. to do it in the daytime too.
0: Absolutely. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me on your island. Thank you so much, Natalie Mason. I'll leave this island for you. Do with it as you choose. You can have more books sent to you. You don't have to just only have three. That's good. All right. Uh, you can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we discussed on the Good Re- on our Goodreads page. And you can find that on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Search for the Read page. I'd love to hear what you're taking with you on your desert island. Just tweet at Melb Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books, and let me know the books that you simply cannot live without. You can download previous Desert Island Books episodes in your favourite podcasting app, or you can go to SoundCloud or iTunes and search for Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading, everyone.